all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 270 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the U.S. Electoral College episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that the number of U.S. Electoral College votes needed to be elected president of the United States just so happens to be 200. 70. And with that wonderful little bit of political knowledge, generic political knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Matthew, how is that dysentery treating you? Well, like I told you in the pre-show, I will always lament that I never got to live the life of Errol Flynn, but I guess I'll get to die like him. Yes, because we all know Errol Flynn died of eating tainted Chipotle. That's right. He really did have like a terrible, terrible case of dysentery right before he died, though. So, um, and and they believe that is actually what ultimately stalled his last attempt to get the final film he was working on um, to get the financing finished because he had started shooting it. But ran out of money, but he had enough that he had a reel so that he could show people and stuff. And he was actually at a, at an event, um, kind of a glorified party where the whole point was try and sell your stuff. And um, he spent more time in the bathroom than he could on the floor and nobody ultimately bought the project. Really? I never heard of that. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, that can go down in like one of the many, I'm sure many, bowel you know stories in the bowels of history yeah into the bowels literally the bowels of history well well we hope we hope that you do not follow in the path of errol flynn where you die of dysentery i'm hoping you feel better next week i got a feeling that the next two weeks are just gonna be shit-tastic no pun intended yeah um no i mean seriously i don't know i my my kids were going through this thing i know that we had uh briefly talked about it last monday we were making some jokes and everything um, here we are on the 11th of March. It's a uh, spring break here in the Houston area. Um, going into that at least. And, um, so we had made some jokes with everything. And, it, and so my kids did have it. Two of my three kids were suffering. Uh, but it turned out it was just like a 24 to 36 hour bug. They were fine. I ended up catching hell Monday night, paid for it on Tuesday. By Wednesday, everybody seems to be feeling better. Um, kids are going back to school. All of a sudden Thursday comes around and my third kid who didn't get it the first time decides to somehow magically get it. And then I caught it again from her on Friday and I just, yeah, it's been terrible. It has been one hell of a weekend. I finally broke down and went and got the old Imodium AD today. And that seems to at least be holding the body in check for now. But, um, Anyway, you know, I've been re, okay, so, so here's something fun. Speaking of bowels of history, I've been doing this, uh, new audio book. Uh, so when I'm not listening to my podcasts and stuff and, and I have a variety of favorite podcasts and whatnot, um, I make sure to have really good audio books. And so I came across, uh, George Washington, a life and it clocks in it. Just a hair over 41 hours. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty exhaustive uh, study. And by the age of 27, uh, Washington has actually survived smallpox, uh, what they called pl- pleurisy, and repeated bouts 
of dysentery. So not only am I living or dying like Errol Flynn, I'm living like George Washington, just a couple centuries late. Repeated bouts of dysentery. Like, what exactly yeah. is a bout? Dysentery, of course, is is a very nice way of saying stomach flu, severe stomach flu, uh, that primarily attacks the buttocks end of the body. And uh, you, there really wasn't a whole lot you could do for it because they didn't have a way to understand viruses and things of that nature back then. So um, they would bloodlet and everything like that, which, of course, was terrible for something like dysentery. Um, but if, but over time, you, you would get over it. And sometimes it was a couple of weeks. Sometimes it was a couple of months. And George Washington just kept getting unlucky with it and he had had it at least four times between like 22 and 27 hmm that that is the worst way to spend your early 20s <laughs> he basically just went from turning 20 directly into going to 30 pretty much pretty much at a time when you know average life expectancy was still pretty low sure so he was probably anyway. laying in bed going i'm gonna die from this shit i cannot believe it. this is how i go Does the and, sad part is, the sad part is, he did think that because um, his dad, uh, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and one of his brothers all died before, like, the age of 40. Could you imagine going through Washington's old diaries and journals and seeing little smudges of his shit from him sitting on the toilet from dysentery for so long <laughs> that he... <laughs> He mistakenly used one of the pages uh, as, you know, just to get that little dingleberry off, you know? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's why maybe that's why the dollar bill is so dirty today, right? Everybody knows that one of the most unclean things you're ever going to handle is cash. And isn't it fitting that the second highest distributed denomination is the one dollar bill? Yeah, and I think that's how they got the green color also. They looked at it and thought, you know, <laughs> dysentery. Did the color of dysentery will do the trick. Well, well it sounds there's like your show title right there. You showed the color of dysentery. The, <laughs> the color of dysentery. Perfect. Perfect. But it, it sounds like you're keeping uh, the storm gates closed. The tidal wave yes. might be brewing, but it's not breaching anytime soon, hopefully. That is the idea. And again, uh, the, you know, finally cracking down and doing the emodium thing is, I think, what did it. Because I'm a very big fan. I'm not one of those hardcore homeopathic people like, you know, natural medicine and it's so much better than science. No, no, no. I don't believe that at all. But I also do believe that, you know, when possible, you want to try and let nature take its course. So... I, I did probably wait a day, at least a day longer than I should have before finally caving and getting the old over-the-counter remedy. So, yeah. But anyways, in, in happier news, <laughs> what's going what's going on in, uh, you know, upgraded SO land over there, sir? Good, good, good. We're moving next week, so just packing and more packing and packing. Okay. Well, then, I guess, what do you say we uh, tickle the old mail sack, see if there's anything in there? It's been a little while since we dusted it off. You want to check and see if there's something in there? Yeah, yeah, I, I oh, oh, wait, whoa, oh, hey, I, I think, I think I see something. I, I, I think it is, it, it, whoa, I think that's we have some erection. mail. We're I, good. Wait, what? <laughs> I said that's just your erection, you're good. 
Well, I'm glad my erection is appearing from your mail sack. Um, I've always thought it was a colloquial hour sack. But who you know, has I, I control of the sack, sack, though? Well, clearly, if it's your erection, it might. Uh, yeah. We have We're mail from Diana. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we got to do it right. We got to do it right. Oh. Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Okay, see, now we say there's mail from Diana. <laughs> As she's just shaking her head. And... She probably is. She really is. Okay, so it turns out, now this was actually a personal favor to me. So earlier today, uh, through the old social media actions, I happened to see that Diana was going to go see Red Sparrow. And I had seen Red Sparrow with some friends of mine earlier this week. We didn't cover it for the show, but I just had an opportunity to go and said, hey, why not? Check it out. Um, I was really not impressed. Now, I don't think it's a terrible movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it just, I mean, it's just not that great. I felt that there were a lot of, um, a lot of casting issues and stuff like that with the film. Um, and for me, ultimately, it kind of boils down to, um, it boils down to this really wasn't the best book to be made into a movie. Um, so, that being said, when I saw that Diana was going to go see it, um, I, I asked her, hey, would you, you know, if you're feeling froggy, please send us an email and let us know what your review of the movie is because I would like to get some other feedback. And so she graciously agreed to do so. And so her subject line is Red Sparrow. She says, hey, guys, saw Red Sparrow today and per Matt's request, here's my review. Liked, not loved it. Better and less traumatic than I expected. Enjoyed the dramatic music and scenery. A bit predictable and slow and almost corny with the spy tropes, but some surprising comic male characters. The Russian accents were pathetic, but at least they didn't try hard to do an awful version. The torture scenes were not that sexual or as graphic as I had heard they'd be, but you may look at your cheese slicer differently afterwards. And oh dear God, truer words, Diana. Truer words. Contrary to a lot of reviews that say it demeans women, I found it empowering women. A case of who masters who. On the SLS scale, I'd give it a 3.75. Yours truly, Diana Weeks. And thank you very, very much for that, Diana. I really appreciate it. It's really nice to get a, uh, a, first of all, a viewer, um, viewpoint on that, uh, or a listener viewpoint, and also to really get a, woman's perspective as well on something that was as controversial because ostensibly as as red sparrow herself puts it you sent me to horror school so that has a whole lot of connotation to it and there are many scenes that play on that aspect of it so um so to say that there there are people out there who would say that it's demeaning to women you know it's nice to have a good counterpoint on that um yeah so thank you very much for that i really appreciate that diana and if you would like to reach out to us as well unless tim do you have any thoughts or did you get a chance to see it as well perchance or no i i don't have 18 hours to go see red sparrow 
but <laughs> it is pretty long. That is true. Um, all right. Well, then please send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And also, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that by following us at the SLScast. And so without further ado, um, I think we're going to do things a little bit. We decided to do things a little bit differently um, because we do have a copycat throwdown to get to this week. But we also wanted to... Um, kind of have a crossover with one of our copycat throwdown films. And so in order to accurately do that, we need to do the movies first, right, Tim? That is correct. So we are going to have our bonus segment. Uh, and just for fun, because of the way we're working it all out, we will have a bonus segment next week as well. The bonus segment next week is going to be Creme de la Crap, where we'll be looking at 1988's Andy Sedaris uh, film, Picasso trigger. Um, but, uh, until we get to this week's bonus segment of copycat throwdown, let's do some movies. What do you say, sir? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. <laughs> And this week's movies are, as a special bonus thrown in, Paddington 2. We also have A Wrinkle in Time and Final 2018's A Wrinkle in Time, not to be confused with 2003's televised version, also from Disney, and 2018's version of Death Wish. So, uh, clearly we're going to be leaving Death Wish for last, because that'll be our segue into our copycat throwdown. So, what would you like to start, sir? Let's start... This show <laughs> off on the <laughs> highest point possible because it's going to go down quickly from here uh, with uh, Paddington 2. Paddington 2, folks. Here we go. Mr. Booba. Oh, what's this? Oh, <laughs> this is London. It's wonderful. Aunt Lucy always dreamed of coming to London. If she saw this, it would be like she were finally here. Aunt Lucy! Oh, Paddington. This is perfect. I've had a brilliant idea. I'm going to get a job and buy that book for Aunt Lucy's birthday. No, window cleaner. Are you quite sure you're ready for the workplace, Paddington? It's Phoenix Buchanan. Dad's celebrity client. I suppose you know who I am. Oh, yes. You're a very famous actor. VIP, celebrity. <laughs> or used to be. Now you do dog food commercials. <laughs> this pop-up book, where on earth did you find it? Mr. Gruber's antique shop. Stop! Thief! Hold it right there. Oh, but I'm not the thief. Mysterious things have been happening all over town. We're rich again. I may look like a hardened criminal, but I'm innocent. We're going to need a foolproof plan. If anyone can recognize a criminal, it's us. He's a master of disguise. This is breaking an entry. I haven't broken anything. Where do you think you're going there? Paddington wouldn't hesitate if any of us needed help. He looks for the good in all of us. Oh. Marmalade. Oh. Take a seat. All right, so... 
2017 live anime live action animated comedy film uh it's directed by paul king and it actually stars uh hugh bonneville sally hawkins brendan gleason julie waters uh jim broadbent peter capaldi hugh grant and ben wishaw so uh who is the voice obviously of paddington brown and this movie picks up um I mean, definitely, we'll, we'll give it uh, some time after the events of the first film, where Paddington has definitely come to enjoy his life with the Brown family in Windsor Garden and uh, Windsor Gardens, and he's actually now kind of a permanent and popular fixture there in the community. Um, he wants to do something special for his Aunt Lucy's 100th birthday, and while trying to find a special gift he is uh inadvertently accused of theft of an antique and uh yet the dastardly doer who performed this said deed um is actually played by hugh grant um shenanigans ensue as we always say, or as I always say, and the movie goes on from there. This is one of the few times when you can honestly say that in every single conceivable way, the um, the the sequel outperformed the original. Uh, it's like they took every opportunity to learn from the the very few mistakes of the original Paddington and correct those and build on what worked. And I was highly, highly concerned about that uh, going into this film, especially once I kind of got an idea of what the plot was because Hugh Grant's character could be so, so easily overdone. And yet he's not. He understands. It's like he innately understands or through the direction of Paul King or both where to draw the line with each level of this multifaceted character that he plays as the villain. And yet it works. Everything works. And it's just so completely wholesome and wonderful and all the colors and the cinematography, everything that was so amazing about Paddington is all here in spades in Paddington too. Um, I was actually because of the way this movie played off, I was kind of hoping that there wasn't going to be a Paddington three. It turns out that there is going to be a Paddington three. And I really and truly hope it's the last Paddington three. I I would even be okay if Paddington three never sees the light of day, because I really feel like at this point it is just a cash grab. I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but this movie is damn near perfection for me. And I give it a five-star uh, rating. I absolutely adore this movie. Cannot wait to own it as soon as possible. And, I mean, my entire family loved it. Five stars. God, this movie's so good. Damn it, Tim. Why did we? Why couldn't we salvage the day and do this at the end? <laughs> because life is not like a marmalade sandwich. It doesn't fix all problems. This is true, and I and I didn't even have an emergency one to put in my hat. Yes, <sighs> I love that bit in this one. I don't. I'm not going to go into too much detail because I know most of you have not seen this movie. It's very popular in the UK, but it, I don't know how much it made out here. 
Actually, maybe it did okay. I can't. I can't remember. It's but it, it, two hundred seventeen and a half million. But that's definitely going to be worldwide. So I'll say maybe it made thirty out here. I'm trying. Let's see here. Forty point one million in the U.S. and Canada, and then one hundred seventy-seven point three. Oh wow. Okay. Well, it definitely made a little bit of money. So therefore, some people did go and see it, but it was not in the theaters for that long. I had to really go uh, hunt for this movie. But I, I love that bit with the marmalade sandwich when he is actually in that prison with uh, Brennan Gleason. It was totally unexpected, and it was super sweet how they brought that little gag back. Um, and it was fun like whenever they do bring those gags from the first film back. And not, I wouldn't even I guess necessarily call them a gag, but the little mentions, the little tip of the hats, you know, to something that you remember from the first film. It's done in a very clever, interesting, and overly sweet way. And this movie is just sweet. It's all that stuff. It's clever, it's witty, it's sweet, it's beautiful to look at. It's by the same people who did Flip and Harry Potter, so you can expect some very interesting world building. The director is Paul King. Paul King did some work with the, The Mighty Bush and a few other English comedic of little sketch comedy shows. So he has this nice little knack for capturing funny little comedic moments and, and let them actually play out without many cuts. And it's just something that's very special and very English and cinematic that we hardly ever see anymore in children's movies. Uh, unless, of course, it's like an animated Disney Pixar movie, but um, it, it's nice watching some of these characters and scenes just play out or play through. It's just, it's very sweet. Is the movie Laugh Out Loud hysterical from beginning to end? No, not really. Is the movie particularly smarter than the first one? I wouldn't say it was necessarily smarter or significantly more enjoyable, but that's not saying it's not any of that. It's more of the adventures of Paddington, and I'll gladly take a third Paddington adventure because... There ha- I haven't seen anything this sweet, this lovingly made in quite a long time in a children's movie. I liked uh, Hugh Bonneville, his character's arc. He is the father. His character arc's great. I mean, the first one, he didn't want the bear, uh, so he was kind of the curmudgeon. And of course, he lightens up and agrees to adopt the bear. But this one, they had to find something else to make him a curmudgeon about, and... It, you know, it was kind of exploited his more conservative attitudes towards judging people. He's okay with judging uh, so-and-so, but if they're a well-respected customer at his insurance firm, then there's no judging that man. But really, he is the one to judge. Uh, so it was just really cool. These little fun little character building as well as the world building was just a treat to watch. So I'm giving this one definitely a 4.5 out of 5. Thoroughly enjoyed it, despite its faults. I mean, really, the faults just kind of fly out the window. More kids should see it. I hope it'll find more life and more of an audience on DVD or streaming or Blu-ray. Probably Blu-ray, not DVD. Sure. I mean, I know that my kids, um, especially my younger kids, now actually look for the Paddington books. Really? Are they reading them now or...? Yes, they are uh, good. My my youngest, especially. I I would say success. All right, so then I guess that moves us to a wrinkle in time, and um, well, yeah, let's do this part first. See with mine. You were a top student, but look at you now. You can't keep using your father's disappearance as an excuse to act out. Is that his work? What's it about? Their dad. 
He wanted to touch the stars. Imagine that the ant here wants to get to her other hand. The quickest option is to walk across the street. But it turns out a straight line is not the shortest distance between two points. Not if you use a fifth dimension. It's outside of the rules we know of time and space. So the ant arrives in my hand instantaneously. So you fall to space. More likely wrinkle it. Where are we? We heard a cry out in the universe. Father's alive. We believe he is, and we're here to help you find him. We are in search of warriors. Warriors who serve the good and the light in the universe. You're kidding. Do I look like I'm kidding? A little. I'm not. I'm not. Your father's trapped by an evil energy. It's too strong for our light. And the only one who can stop it is you. Be a warrior. All right, so say 2018 science fantasy adventure film. Um, and, and guys, it's just, it's really, really just not that good. I guess I don't know how to put this nicely. So this is, I guess let me sum it up. This is the tweet that I sent to the Wrinkle in Time movie on Twitter after I left. I said, uh, at Wrinkle in Time, because someone said, I bet you can't make a movie where kids fly in a giant lettuce wrap. And then I included the Barney Stinson gif of challenge accepted. Um, because that's about all this movie's got going for it. And that's not saying much. Um, this movie is actually based on a novel of the same name from 1962, uh, by an author named Madeline L'Anglais. Um, she actually took this as the first book in what was ultimately, what ultimately became a series of five books called The Time Quintet. Uh, I'm sorry, Quintet. And, it follows both the Murray and O'Keefe families. Now, the Murrays are the chief uh, family involved in this one. Uh, the young boy that goes with them, uh, not her brother, but I guess, you know, love interest. Um, he is O'Keefe, uh, Calvin. Um, they end up, uh, you know, together, whatever. Um, the movie, here's... The- Really and truly, the biggest problem with the movie is that, and this, there is no moral judgment here, but these, these books are based on an author who, much in the vein of C.S. Lewis, uh, with The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and, you know, the, um, Chronicles of Narnia and all that good stuff, um, wrote in a heavily Christian allegorical allegorical style. And so they kind of twisted out everything that was originally religiously intact about the books and put it into the movie. Well, the thing is, is that everything that, that's supposed to make the story work doesn't work unless you keep the spiritual elements in. And I'm not su- suggesting that you have to make a Christian movie by any stretch of the imagination, but you've got to be mindful of what you're taking out and what you're changing, especially when you're creating a $100 million 
uh, hopefully franchise starter. Um, a, a great deal has been made uh, about Ava DuVernay, uh, first female director of color, uh, to get a $100 million budgeted movie. Uh, clearly, we've got Reese Witherspoon, Oprah Winfrey, uh, Mindy Kaling, also, you know, very um, important in all their fields and stuff. Um, and also, we have uh, Storm Reed. Who is who herself is obviously a young person of color, and all of these things going into making this film uh, designed to really, you know, put something out there that is meant for a wide audience. And you know what? I would say that for kids, it worked. They took a $100 million gamble on making a family friendly epic that could turn into a series, into a franchise, and unfortunately, they only scored with the little kids. Um, I, I could absolutely see how any, virtually any kid, would love this movie. And despite its um, great visuals in terms of special effects, for an adult, it's just not worth spending all that money to take kids to the theater to go see it. Um, it's there's not enough there. This is going to be one of those movies where, um, and don't hate me too much, but things like Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal or what have you, where you loved them as children and they will always hold a special spot for you as a child. If you didn't watch them when you were a child and you go back and watch them now, you're kind of like, wow, is that terrible? Um, and that's what A Wrinkle in Time is. There is no cohesive characterization of anything. Uh, the story spends way too much time, time trying to be specific, followed by immediately choosing to not be specific enough, where it's even more important to have been specific, and alternates between characters like Charles Wallace, who's supposed to be this, like, hidden genius, um all automatically knowing what's happening with everyone else, including the audience going, but why? And you can't have, but why be the driving force of a movie when why is never fully explained. It's just not good guys. And I give it a hard time because of the flying lettuce wrap thing, but uh, you know, it, it's because it's just that bad. Uh, I, this is a 1.75 for me. I absolutely do not like this movie, and I would be extremely surprised if this gets any form or fashion of a serious sequel. Um, this is the second time that Disney has tried to do this film. They did it as a TV, made-for-TV film uh, back in 2003, and it was excoriated by critics even then. So... Um, the movie on uh, Rotten Tomatoes is currently at 42%. So I don't see this one going anywhere else. Um, Tim, what do you got, sir? Well, not only is the Rotten Tomato critical score at 42%, but the audience score uh, says that only 36% of people liked it. Regular audience actually liked it. It's very interesting. Uh, it's a shame, really. I I I'm sure the inevitable... 
HBO or Netflix miniseries of A Wrinkle in Time that'll come out in 10 years or so will be an absolute delight. But what we have now, the Disney Ava DuVernay's version, is a complete miscalculated misfire. And I've always heard the name, the title, A Wrinkle in Time, but really didn't know much about it. Started doing a little bit of research and read about this lady, and I believe she's a producer on this one. She fell in love with the book. When the book came out in the late 60s, early 70s, late 60s, she read the book, loved it, and she said to herself she wanted to see this into a movie, made into a movie. And then over time, she realized, well, I should be the one to make this movie. And I guess in the 80s or so, uh, she ended up meeting the actual writer of the book. And who wrote that book? Mad- Madeline L'Anglais. Yes, Madeline L. Engel. <laughs> yes, Ma- Madeline L'Anglais. They met, and the lady, who I guess produced it, won her over. And so she's been on a quest to get this movie made. Uh, and of course, they managed to make the four-hour-long miniseries for TV. And Madeline L'Anglais was not impressed with it because she felt like this story needs a bigger budget. It belongs in a bigger format on, you know, on a, at the movies, not on your little letterbox TV. But it needed to be more of an epic. And so that is how we got 2018's A Wrinkle in Time. A movie that you could tell that Ava DuVernay was trying to ground this movie as much as possible in reality that it clashes with all the fantastical elements. There is a scene when you meet one of the witches played by Mindy Kaling, who is Mrs. Who or Miss Who. I guess Mrs. Who. Remember now, they're the they're the Mrs. W's. There's only one Miss Witch and then a Miss Who and then a Miss What's It. Oh, okay. They're the they're the Misses. Miss Whatevers. I even I forgot what you just said. This is how forgettable these characters are. All these Miss What Whatevers, these W women, basically God Oprah, Reese Witherspoon, and Mindy Kaling, before the three of them together meet with the kids to go on this adventure, at least Reese Witherspoon and Mindy Kaling are introduced separately from each other, I guess. And whenever you meet Mindy Kaling, it's very uh, like the young boy Charles Wallace leads his sister and this other boy, Calvin, into this old falling apart house. And basically, without like any of the colors changing, with the atmosphere feels totally the same. The tone of the film feels totally the same. They walk through, and it looks like the colors look like a regular house. It just looks a little weird. You know, like I think there's books kind of stacked up really funky, and there could be other stuff that makes it look a little unworldly. And then, of course, Mindy Kaling, Miss Who, sitting down at this throne area wearing, like, this wacky-looking outfit. Again, it all looks like it belongs in the same world as where these kids are from. But the issue with that, whenever they go into the realms, or whatever they call it, they go into the different dimensions or parts of the universe. I, I Guys, once something happened, once I learned something about the story, it left my brain within two seconds. It was useless knowledge that was not retained for really any period of time. 
so I apologize if I seem like I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I promise you I did see the movie just this morning, too. Anyways, but once they uh, they do go into these other realms, and suddenly it's a big CGI fest, so much blue screen and green screen and all this color and stuff, it completely clashes with the grounded-in-reality aspect that Ava DuVernay was trying to achieve. So, ultimately, it felt like this movie was conflicting with itself, where you have something that she wanted to make a film that dealt with many different aspects of perception, of abuse, I guess, all all while grounded in, in reality. But then on the other hand, there's like this big Wizard of Oz aspect that doesn't connect well at all. And I think kind of this movie just was completely miscalculated because of that. It needed more of a visual flair. It lacked great moments. Incredibleness, really. I mean, you watch this movie and you know that it was made for $100 million. I couldn't help but ask myself, where did that $100 million go? I know Oprah got a lot of that money. I don't mean to pick on Oprah, but it's it's just like, seriously, you just wonder... Surely, most of that budget went to Oprah because the blue screen effects were wonderful, but it all... I challenge you, sir. What's that? I I challenge you. The $100 million went to the lettuce wrap. Oh, the flying lettuce wrap, yes. The flying lettuce wrap. Which, you know, that is is actually uh, the sperm of the Jolly Green Giant. (laughs) But, you know, I was mentioning, like, the characters and... Reese Witherspoon, it took me about 10 minutes of her screen time to realize that she was supposed to be a quirky character. They were supposed to have these characteristics, you know, but like how this movie was shot, it would do this weird cut to Reese Witherspoon and she's holding a phone or something up really awkwardly where obviously she did that maybe off script or if it was in script, this would be even worse, you know, to show that she's quirky. She doesn't know how to use some of this technology. You know, she's just kind of doing her own thing, but it's not captured correctly. So you just think it looks awkward and maybe a misedit than it, a, a character trait or a character quirk or, or whatnot. It's just a mess. And it's sad because I am a fan of Ava DuVernay's work. I like what she stands for. I like the ideas that you can tell that she had important aspects that she wanted to get across in this movie. But there was just so much she was trying to do that it seemed like she was focusing too much on the story elements or too much on the emotional elements than to really pay attention to the overall filmmaking or the storytelling aspect. And that is where this movie falters, I think, completely. I do give this one a 1.5 out of 5. So, yeah. It's, it's what, what do you think? I mean, I mean honest, I'm certainly... Oh, what's that? I was going to say, the only reason it got a 1.75 for me uh, is because I really do think it succeeds as a children's movie. I think that... Were there um, kids at the screening you went to? Oh, yeah. I went to a Saturday afternoon, and, I mean, it was pretty packed. I would say... 90 to 95% sold out. Um, and it was all, I mean, it was clearly all families and they, like the kids clapped at the end. Really? The kids, the adults were getting up and leaving like, you know, as fast as they could, but the kids were like clapping. Really? And so I, I really do. That's, that's, that's what gave it that extra quarter star was because clearly 
they did succeed in making a kids movie. They just didn't make a good family. And were they quiet and attentive during the whole movie? For the most part, yeah. I mean, really and truly, I, I mean, it, it is a it is a good kids movie. It is not a good adult movie. Yeah. And and that's I mean, you know, I, I guess and and, and again, I, I really think it's just. Uh, I don't even blame, uh, I don't even rest too much of this on DuVernay. I think that given the material she had to shoot with, um, I think she did the best that she could, but I really think it's the screenplay that's the problem. Oh, no, for sure. I, and, well, I think so too, for the most part. Know, and, and, uh, and again, not, no religious, I, I had never heard of this before. I have no, you know, there, I have no dog in this fight. But when I found out what had happened, and again, uh, I had even read about the story about the woman who had was like, "Oh, I got to get this done," and I really and and had really tried to get it made. Even with the current screenwriter was like, "No, I I understood that there were religious connotations and stuff, and and those were good for that time, but I wanted to focus on other elements that I think are more important today." And that was her long-winded way of saying that's why I cut out what I cut out and had the story be what it is. Yeah, the kids I sat next to at the 9.45, technically 8.45 a.m. showing this morning <laughs> throughout the entire movie. They kept opening freaking sandwich bags the entire time. Nice. And like, man, they were rowdy little girls. Oh, and I got to finally also, I, got, I thought this was kind of funny. I finally got to experience Tim Rage in a movie theater. I don't <laughs> always have popcorn with me. I would say probably... 70 to 75 percent of the time i have popcorn and a drink um however i usually try and eat my popcorn during an action scene or during scenes with you know lots of music and score so that i am at least trying to be mindful of the people around me who yes we're all in a movie theater together but at the same time i don't want to be you know or anything like that and for the record i do chew with my mouth closed but I had nothing. I had no drink, no popcorn, no anything. I'm just sitting on the end of the aisle. And I mean, like, even during the quiet, I mean, all I hear is a... And it's like in fucking surround sound. It's coming from the front, from the sides, from up behind me, from off to my right-hand side. My, I'm like, oh, my God, it's all these people eating popcorn. And it was. It was every single person in there eating popcorn. I'm like, oh, my God. This is Tim. This is Tim Rage. I understand Tim Rage now. Yeah, I feel you, sir. I feel your pain. <laughs> oh, well, just for that, that movie deserved an extra quarter store. <laughs> but go. I mean, since, since more than likely people have seen this movie or took their kids to see the movie, the one thing that really bothered me and it rubbed me completely the wrong way was... Uh, the little twist there with Charles Wallace, the little kid, what becomes of him? Mm-hmm. That kid was such a shitty actor. And I get it. That's a lot of pressure, you know, when now you're becoming like the sinister, evil bad guy at the end of the movie. But, oh my God. And that's the problem. So the, I think the problem, and that for me was a complete miscast. Let me see. Hang on. Uh, Charles Wallace. Uh, Derek McCabe. Young Derek. Young Squire Derek. Age nine. He's playing a six-year-old kid. Now, granted, he's supposed to have, like, super genius powers, um, which is why at the age of six, 
Um, his dad's been missing for four years, so he would theoretically, theoretically it would have been two. That's why he's kind of in charge of everything that's going on, even though he's only six. And again, these are key things from the book. I, I went and researched the book. He was five in the books, and the whole reason he makes the, the turn at the end of the, at the end of the first book is because he didn't, he was too young to have known his father. And so that's what preempts his ability to stay the course like Meg does. And more to the point, Meg actually makes it out with her dad because they have to go back and rescue. They have to go back separately and rescue Charles Wallace. So I just think in this particular instance, though, it it was a total miscast. I, I, um, I don't know how many of you remember The Cosby Show. <laughs> Perhaps, though, you might remember the TV series on Disney, That's So Raven, featuring Raven Simone. All right, so Raven was the same kind of precocious um, actor, actress, that Derek is in this film. The thing was is that in... They wisely, wisely limited the exposure in Cosby Show only to scenes where that particular character and that particular pizzazz was necessary. And so it worked. But when you feed into that for too much for too long, you get this way, way, way over-the-top, almost ham-like performance that you get out of Derek, and where in 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 which case it's no longer cute. It's literally fucking creepy, and and at best it's annoying. So yeah, I just I f- I feel bad for the kid because that might be him. And you know what? That one might be on Duvernay because she's clearly on set saying, "Hey, good job." So I guess maybe that aspect would probably be on Duvernay, but. Um, I just feel bad for the kid because it's like, oh my God, this, you know, his lines were almost as bad as, you know, are you an angel from that, you know, from episode one? I just, I don't know. Well, luckily he hasn't, uh, had too much of a bite of fame yet. So this is true. So I guess then that without further ado, leaves us with Death Wish 2018's Death Wish. Disney's Death Wish. Is it? No, I'm kidding. Oh, I was going to say, it wouldn't surprise me. I'm just trying to... Th- oh, okay, no, it's MGM. Sway in the morning, Shay 4-5. We got to talk about what's happening in Chicago. Everybody's watching this viral video. This guy in the hoodie, they're calling the Grim Reaper. He stopped the carjacking. Is he right for taking the law into his own hands? He's become a folk hero. What about the shooter? You look like a white dude. What is your emergency? These men are breaking into my house. I think they're here. <gasps> no. I failed to protect them. Dad, where's mom? The men who did it are out there. So there's nothing that you can do? Is that what you're saying? If a man really wants to protect what's his, I want to buy a gun. He has to do it for himself. We're closed, pal. We'll kill my wife. Who else was there? I don't know anything else. I believe you, Joe. You're not gonna kill me. No. Jack is. You got caught in some crossfire? The ice cream man done it. 
The ice cream man. Can't walk to school if you don't work for him. Who are you? The last customer. You're not a cop! Somebody has to do it! You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll see. They called him a guardian angel. He saved my life. You look much better getting out socializing. Mmm. Not so much. Well, whatever you're doing, keep it up. <laughs> okay. I will. All right, so we got a 2018 American vigilante action film directed by Eli Roth. And this is basically, they're considering it the sixth installment of the Death Wish series because, yes, there were five other movies. And a remake of the 74 film that starred Charles Bronson. Now, interestingly, the original, the original uh, film was based on a novel from 1972. And the sequel, the novel had a sequel. The sequel was called Death Sentence. And Death Sentence got its own version of a film directed by James Wan starring Kevin Bacon in 2007, which most people say is like really, really good. And you should check that out. So I will probably check that out at this point. I was one of the few who saw that at the theater on opening night. And? Um, it's. I mean, it was 11 years ago, so... I think it might be better watching it now. It's definitely the James Wan cheesy, cheesy writing, but there's some cool continuous camera shots. Okay. And Kevin Bacon's great. You got to love Kevin Bacon. Well, this is true. This is true. Okay. So here we have Paul Kersey, who is a doctor in Chicago. Now, I will say that this was probably the one of the, actually, as far as I can tell, the only thing the movie actually did right was they moved the setting from New York to Chicago. Now, we'll cover this a little bit more in our copycat throwdown, but a lot of people don't realize that New York City in the 70s was basically the murder capital of the United States. Violent crime was ridiculous. The streets were basically a war zone. Contrast that to today, and New York City is actually one of the safest uh, cities in the United States, and its violent crime rate is lower than basically it's ever been in the history of it being per capita ever, ever. So that's good. Whereas today, Chicago is rapidly earning its moniker as the most violent city in the United States. I get why they put it in Chicago. I, I'm fine with that. That makes sense. We have Paul Kersey, who is uh, a doctor, an ER trauma surgeon, and he's got the idyllic life. And if you didn't know it was an idyllic life, then you didn't hear the Beach Boys, God only knows what I'd be without you, in the you know first five minutes when we find out that his perfect life, beautiful daughter is off to college. Um, oh yeah, and Elizabeth Shue is his wife. So... She's still hot, although um, they peg her at 43 in this movie. Um, they, there's like a 911 scenario, and it's like 17-year-old daughter and 43-year-old. I'm like, look, if you, it's not that she's not beautiful. She is beautiful. Today and forever, she will be one of my Hollywood crushes, and she's on my I-get-to-have-sex-with-her list. Okay, like the wife and I, we have the list of, you know, she's got like Chris Evans, you know, I've got like Elizabeth Shue, fine. So this is not a dig at 
her age um, or at her looks. But it's like, my God, we understand Bruce Willis is like fucking 62 or something. And um, and Elizabeth Shue is rapidly approaching 50. And it's like, you're trying to tell me that when she was doing Adventures in Babysitting, she was 13 years old driving around Chicago? Huh? Chicago of all places? No, come on. So it's stuff like this throughout the whole movie. It's just poorly, 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 poorly executed. Everything is poorly executed. From all of the establishing shots and the establishing info, for crying out loud, we've got this cop rushing in and, uh, you know, and they call, and they call Kersey from surgery and he's like, you know, and you're supposed to try and get this idea of what Kersey, of what kind of man Kersey is. And he walks in and the cop's partner is just bleeding out on the table. And Kersey walks in and is like, give me five units of blah, 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 stat and whatever. And literally just puts his fingers on, barely even touches the side of the guy's neck and goes, oh, that's too late. Like, how about we show off what kind of badass motherfucker you are in the, you know, in, in the surgery here? Nope, doesn't even bother that. Then, then he walks out and gives the least convincing, I'm sorry your friend died speech in the history of I'm sorry your friend died speeches. I'm fairly certain that Harrison Ford's first spoken lines as a bellhop back in like the early 70s were better delivered than Bruce Willis's I'm sorry your friend just fucking died speech as he walks away. I It's like, how am I supposed to care about this guy? And so at this point, I immediately realize this movie is going to be terrible. Fortunately... It's laughably bad with very well, for the most part, executed action scenes. So the movie doesn't get any better from there. It just turns into this big thing featuring um, uh, Chase Wave, whatever, from Sirius XM and the Man Dog um, syndicated radio guy, I guess, out of Chicago. These guys are out of Chicago. Man Cow? Man Cow! There you go. And so man dog sounds a lot better, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you have this guy who, who becomes colloquially known as the Grim Reaper training to get better and circumventing gun laws, which I think is absolutely hilarious in this day and age. And granted, this movie was put off twice, so it's not entirely the movie's fault. Uh, timing has a lot to do with things and. That's definitely not their fault that this movie was pushed off uh, like it was. But still, you've got him circumventing gun laws, learning how to shoot, getting everything off YouTube, um, you know, getting his brother framed for his own uh, crimes and whatever. Being uh, His brother actually portrayed halfway decently by Vincent D'Onofrio, uh, though, at uh, again just completely misused i would have rather honestly i would have rather seen vincent d'onofrio um play kersey uh, i'm sorry play paul the actual lead in the movie i think he would have done a better job at it um the movie just falls all over the place uh, we've got girls who are in comas who magically awaken from comas and they don't give you any idea of time so you have no idea how to buy into 
um, Kersey's skills growing. Uh, you have no idea how to buy into the idea of Kersey's daughter being the survivor that she is, especially when we get to the climax of the film of a girl who's theoretically been in a coma for God knows how many weeks and supposedly only out for say 30 days because you know the bad guys wanted to conveniently wait until bruce willis got his legal gun permits before showing up to kill everybody and not only is this chick who's been in a coma for all this time um physically fit and active she's able to shove a theoretically full credenza out and away from a staircase and underneath it while she's pushing on the side of this hidden staircase door and i'm literally laughing laughing people kind of look at me you know and i'm i'm sorry this is so bad it's funny and that's what kept me in this film because it's literally laughably bad i'm quite frankly glad that um Baywatch got this whole new category uh, given to it at the Razzies this year because I've got a good feeling what movie might go and take its place next year. Uh, and that would be this one. This movie gets a 1.5. It gets one star for accurately moving to Chicago like it should have. And it gets a half star for being unintentionally funny. This is a fucking terrible movie. And... The sad part is, is that while there had been the idea of kind of the aging action star, um, in the past, 1974's Death Wish is commonly thought of as like the launching pad for the genre as a whole. It literally resurrected Charles Bronson's career and uh, reinforced the idea of older action stars being able to carry on well into their 50s and beyond. And quite frankly, I think that this movie just put the nail in the coffin for that genre. 1.5 out of 5. What a fucking piece of shit. Yeah, this movie, this movie's weird. It's written by Joe Carnahan, who has uh, who I like? I mean, he did the movie Stretch that I believe we uh, we reviewed a few years ago about the limo driver. Uh, he also wrote and directed The Gray. He did the Eighteen movie that I know Matt you really liked. There's a lot of fun in entertainment value to his films, and I really wish he actually directed this one. But instead, it's directed by Eli Roth, who is better known as. The Nazi killer, or no, as as the Bear Jew guy from Inglorious Bastards. But he's also better known as the director of Hostel 1 and 2, Cabin Fever, and a few other movies. There are bouts, if I may reuse Matt's terminology from earlier. There are There are bouts of a good movie peppered throughout this film. There's some really cool ultra-violent moments. Uh, there's a neat little scene like in the bar where the payoff with a bowling ball is pretty interesting. Um, there's just something about seeing an action movie where when something heavy comes into contact with the head, you actually either see the brains fly out of the head or you see the head actually cave in. It filled that empty bucket in my movie-going heart where we don't really have these ultra-violent, anything-can-happen type of action movies anymore. 
and it's ultra violent, but in a, in a cartoony way, you know, so you obviously cannot take it seriously. Um, but what ultimately pissed me off about this film, I apologize if I said that earlier, but didn't finish what I was my train of thought, is that it's like it, it, it drastically switches back and forth from being in a way that kind of entertainment can't take it too seriously action or obviously can't take it too seriously action movie to suddenly now it's ultra conservative bullshit ultra conservative i'm not here to piss anybody off but man cow is an is a pretty conservative dude the whole idea of oh he's a he's an american hero he's a vigilante he can just go off and do this and we're all going to take his side so many people jump on this bandwagon it's fucking stupid you just hope that there would be somebody in there questioning it. But you really never get that perspective. What I did enjoy of this film, and I'll go more into it, I guess, whenever we do the copycat throwdown, it does follow some of the complexities and character structure that's in the Death Wish book, where Paul, he becomes obsessed with taking out these people. And what's interesting about this film, it doesn't come across that he becomes obsessed with weapons and the killing, but he becomes obsessed with the notoriety. So the movie does actually play around with interesting little character beats like that that I definitely appreciate. But when it happens, there's no real follow-through. Whenever Vincent D'Onofrio, his brother, shows up and realizes, holy shit, you know, you're you're a wreck. You know, your little bunker here looks like shit. There's trash everywhere. That's really the first time you get an idea that he's kind of, I don't know if manic is the right word, maybe a little bit unhinged. It doesn't really follow through with that. You know, especially given how the movie ends, he gets his daughter back and all of a sudden he's fine. You know, yeah, he becomes more of a badass and it makes for a very satisfying little gun battle with the bad guys at the end. But more character work and less ultra conservative politics that would have made for a better all around film. You know, and you still would have gotten your point across. Nuance. Less is more. This movie, in some ways, follows through with that in the less is more category. Less violence is more, uh, or, or less of the graphic violence has more of an impact. But I think less of the politics, if you want to have your own little message, make it more subtle. Not as blatant and more annoying than the first movie. I give this one a 2 out of five, uh, mainly because of the political aspect of it and the flip-floppy bipolar stance that this movie took. I didn't really notice it as a political thing, um, mainly because I assumed these guys were literally just kind of given a script. Like, here, go full man-cow on this thing. And they're, you know, hey, go full, is it? Shay or Sway? What is what is I think it, I think it's Sway. Yeah, and you know, and go full Sway. I mean, and you could really tell that they were just kind of acting. Oh, for sure. So oh, yeah. yeah. So I didn't yeah. mind. So I didn't mind that aspect of it because it was pretty clear that these were just people doing caricatures of themselves. I mean, I suppose if it was in a true Ooh, context, I don't, if, I don't know if caricature is the. I mean, I don't know about Sway, but I know Mancow. That's how he sounds for sure. So, well, and again, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't listen to him enough to know. But if that's the case, just didn't come across as if they were playing caricatures or they were trying to make it more over the top. So in its way, if that is the case, it still didn't work. 
Sure, no, 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 I just, yeah, at any rate. All right, well, then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Gringo and Game Night. Uh, so, without further ado, I think it's time for some copycat throwdown, is it not, sir? It is. And here we go, folks. It's. It's. The. The. Copy. Copy. Cat. Cat. Throwdown. Throwdown. That's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Stop it. Stop it. No, no. Seriously. Stop it. Oh. Right. Like, stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh, Okay. I'm going to kick, kick your ass. ass. Throw down time. All right. So we are obviously contrasting 1974's Death Wish with 2018's Death Wish. And so just to give you an idea, this is uh, kind of the time frame and the way things worked in 1974. Death Wish. Enjoy a typical afternoon in New York City. Who is it? man. <laughs> My name is Paul Kersey. How's my wife? I'm sorry. She died a few minutes ago, Mr. Kersey. Any chance of catching these men? There's a chance, sure. Just a chance. I'd be less than honest if I gave you more hope, Mr. Kersey. This is Paul Kersey. This is the story of a man who decided to clean up the most violent town in the world. I said, turn around. Hand me the money. He begins where all the super cops leave off. Bugging has gone down by how much, sir? 950 a week to 470 if you reported last week. You understand not so many people know that. And uh, you want to keep it that way, huh? Oh, no, we have to keep it that way, Inspector. This whole city would explode. And if this person is listening to my voice, I urge him in the name of law and order to desist from this one-man crusade and turn himself into the police. Call him a mad vigilante. Call him a hero. Either way, he's always on target. We want you to get out of New York. Permanently. Never make a death wish. Because a death wish always comes true. And you get to love it. This version, of course, is the 1974 version, um, loosely based on the 1972 novel. Um, this one, of course, is directed by Michael uh, Winner and um, stars Charles Bronson as Paul Kersey, an architect living in Manhattan, uh, whose wife and daughter are uh, attacked in home invasion. And, of course, the wife doesn't make it. Daughter goes into a... Um, Basically, more or less, uh, catatonic state due to her attack. Um, and he, uh, ultimately, you know, starts seeking revenge on the streets of New York. Um, all right. So this movie for me, again, I, I had already mentioned this, this time we're taking place in, uh, New York, which I thought was, uh, apt for the time. And, I like that 
um, something that I thought was a nice contrast between these two movies was uh, much like we were just discussing the um, radio aspect where you're hearing the callers talk in and everything. You got the XM radio serious and stuff and you got the regular broadcast radio. Here, uh, you're seeing everything done in magazine and, you know, in print. Uh, a little bit of newscasts on the, you know, evening news, but for the most part, it's done in print. And so, it's really kind of interesting to see how everything kind of goes back and forth. Um, I like, in this movie, there is something significantly uh, and quintessentially 70s with this film. And it goes into the style of the filmmaking and the setup and the lead-in to the action that occurs. One thing that you that really sets this film apart is its pacing. This movie doesn't go out of its way to get to the gore and to get to the violence. It takes its time, not because it's trying to set you up or, or get you on the edge of your seat so much as in, you know, you can see the movie making sensibilities of the time, in which case they were really trying to set up the story, set up the characters and give a plausible way for a, you know, clearly left leaning, uh, upper middle, you know, uh, upper class guy, uh, Midtown Manhattan um, architect to go from that to willing to shoot someone dead on the street. And I definitely like that aspect. It does, however, I would I would argue that it doesn't really age well. And so the movie is the movie is kind of slow as a result. But that doesn't make it bad. It just makes it different. It's just the way that the movie was shot. Whereas in 2018's version, they literally make a loose reference to Texas one time before Bruce Willis shows up there to bury his wife so that that's the reason why he goes there. And then his father-in-law is all like, gotta shoot people and kill them to get them off and protect yourself. Um, okay. As much as I agree with defending yourself and your family and your property, um, randomly shooting at people for poaching a deer on your property may not be the best response. Just saying. Um, and this is somehow the impetus for Bruce Willis's Paul Kersey, the doctor, to look into guns. In... Um, in in 1974's Death Wish, we have Paul Kersey, the architect, played by Charles Bronson, um, taken to Arizona as a part of his job, where he experiences, and is and where he, it's not just exposed to, but he experiences another side of the culture of the country. And yes, it still essentially boils down to the same thing where it's like, you know what? Uh, by the time the cops show up, you're already dead. So you may as well defend yourself. And that's what we believe here in a gun club and da, 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 da. Um, it's definitely very pro NRA and all that good stuff. But at the same time, they don't just throw it at you and go, okay, so here's, you know, here's what you need to know. Just it's no, it's a contrasting view given to an already troubled guy. 
that causes him to think differently and explore why he would go from being that more liberal aspect of the 70s version um, and kind of anti-gun due to the way he grew up into, huh, you know, I think that having this gun is a good idea. And I think maybe if no one else can do it, then I will do it. So you get that shift. You get that understanding. Again, takes a while to get there, makes it slow, but I think it builds to a better movie. Um, there's a reason this ended up resonating with so many people. And there's a reason why it spawned a five film franchise. And you don't do that by making, you know, a shoddy flick. Um, I think overall, aside from the, uh, red paint, Pepto-Bismol blood, <laughs> uh, you know, oh, how I missed the, from the seventies. Um, I think that, um, it, I, I think that the movie, it, you know, exceeded its expectations in trying to show how someone who is reasonable, who is law abiding can be driven to being a vigilante. Um, and also doing so in such a way that demonstrates he's not bulletproof. Um, I, I thought that this movie is just miles, miles better than 2018s, despite it's not having aged particularly well and being a little on the slow side. Um, I would still pick 1974's Death Wish over 2018 Death Wish any day of the week and twice on Sundays. So, Tim, agree, disagree? For the most part, I definitely agree with you. I do prefer the 1974 Death Wish over the 2018 Death Wish. I enjoyed how uh, watching how everything played out. Uh, especially what got him to the point to use a gun and enforce his vigilanteism on the ruffians of New York City. I thought that was very interesting, and in some way I thought it was very natural. However, I would have liked to have seen this movie go down the path of the book and actually have Paul Kersey become seduced by the violence and seduced by the guns and the use of the guns. He becomes like a madman to where by the end of the film, he doesn't even know if he's the good guy or the bad guy. And I just think that's all fascinating. And I guess what still carries over to the movie is by the end of the movie, I realized like, you know what? He wanted to try to clean up the streets and attempt to find his wife's killer and his daughter's abuser but he never encounters them. He never sees them. It's just interesting. And I think that would have been a better film if it went down the path of him becoming seduced by the violence and wanting to impose his own brand of justice because he is becoming uh, mad. And instead, the movie does take more of a pro-right, I guess, stance if we continue down the political aspect of the adaption of the book. In fact, the writer of the book, he didn't like he this was not the intention of his book was to take a political stance. It was more of character of a character development story. And unfortunately, character takes a backseat to the violence. I don't consider it to be an action film. I don't really consider it to be that much of a violent film. I definitely consider it to be a type of exploitation film. You're supposed to not like the people he shoots. However, they are caricatures of 
of of hoodlums, I guess. They're caricatures of bad guys. They happen to all be black men. And I went back and was reading some other reviews of like Vincent Cadby's reviews and others from that period of time. And they all say that this is not what the underbelly of New York looks like. It portrays New York in a totally different light. However, the movie, it's trying to ground itself in reality. And what really took away brownie points for me with 74's Death Wish is characters that they created, I guess, (laughs) is the cast of characters, including Jeff Goldblum, who murdered his wife and raped Paul Kersey's daughter. I mentioned this in a tweet before that they all reminded me of actually all of the bad guys, I guess, the alley rats, I suppose, all reminded me of rejects from every single gang from the movie The Warriors. You know, they're all eccentric, they're all goofy and hyped up on something. It's like they're all hyped up on something at the exact same time every single night, and Paul Kersey only encounters them. Nobody else. You know, no just some deranged wife-beater. No, they're always out trying to find money for blow, crack, or heroin, or something. And they, they all carry knives. Nobody else has a gun except Paul Kersey. I guess that was definitely an improvement in the 2018 Death Wish It's an equal opportunity, good guy, bad guy type of flick. But yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see one day that one day maybe the death a death wish movie will come out where politics aside, it could be a film where it has subtle hints of social commentary. And I know I'm more of a liberal, but I can still enjoy a movie giving its impressions from the other side of the aisle, but I don't like it to be blatant. I don't want it to be blatant. Subtle. Subtle and maybe have it actually within the same realm of entertaining, well-made movie. Because they really want you to be on the side of Paul Kersey, both Pauls. By the time they're balls deep into their vendetta, I guess, their vigilantism, you just you don't feel for them anymore. But between the two, I give it definitely to 1974's Death Wish. I imagine if I were to see this movie in 1974, I would have gotten more of a kick out of it. To me, like all the bad guys in this movie, they were developed from the mind of a suburban white guy from that time. You know, his thoughts of what a criminal, of an inner city criminal looked like and what and how they acted based on TV shows and random things that they watch on white suburban TV or in the white suburban newspapers or whatnot. Well, that's not fair. He, he could have watched The Warriors before he started writing The Bad Guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because The Warriors came out in 78, I think, right? I think, I think it is, yeah. but still. <laughs> Hang on, i got to find out now. The Warriors. The Warriors. 1979, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but that would have been hilarious, though. The Warriors came out (laughs) four months before Jeff Goldblum was cast. Yeah. All right. Well, then that definitely brings us to the end of our copycat throwdown. As I said, we will have a bonus uh, segment, and that's going to be a creme de la crap based on 1988's Picasso Trigger, which is is the third movie in the Andy Sedaris collection. So when we get that knocked out, we'll have at least done the first four. We'll try to do the rest in order um, as we get to them. Uh, So without further ado, I guess we are down to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. Oh, stewardess, 
I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's a cutting Chump don't want to help. Chump don't get the help. Say can't hang. Say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in here. music you've been listening to as always has been brought to us by our music partners cries of solace you can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both slash cries of solace as for us we are of course the sls cast you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can follow us on twitter at the sls cast you can follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit one two three four five you can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if that's your heart's desire don't forget you can subscribe to us on itunes and our favorite us on stitcher radio as well as track us down on the old soundcloud so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Oprah Winfrey, I get to say this. The more you praise and celebrate your life, the more there is in life to celebrate. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.